Good morning, everyone. Welcome once again to another service in person. Those of you who have joined us online, we want to welcome you as well. We're so grateful and thankful that we can be with you and share God's Word with you. For those of you who are here today in person, let me remind you again of our annual business meeting directly following our communion time together. We're in this series called Jesus Encounters, and I want to talk to you about something that I think all of us struggle with, but nobody wants to talk about, and that is doubt. Doubt. There are moments, perhaps even time periods, seasons in your life, where we grapple with doubt. Even as Christians, where we grapple with doubt. We have doubts about our faith. We have times where we doubt, perhaps, even the existence of God. There are doubts that people have about other people, the potential in other people. We are sometimes skeptical of the promises that people make to us, family members make to us. We are doubtful sometimes uh, about the future, what our future holds for our children. There are a lot of doubts that people have when the Toronto Maple Leafs begin the playoffs, whether or not they will win any games. There's a lot of doubts right now because tomorrow they start. There are doubts that we have in our lives when things begin to unravel, things that we thought were a sure thing, when things that don't come together for us as we thought they would come together, begin to, we begin to experience doubt. Now there's a man in the Bible whose faith faltered. He had doubt. And probably he's probably the last person you would think in your life that would have an uncertain connection to the identity of Jesus. This person is John, John the Baptist. He wrestled with doubt. He would, John the Baptist was a cousin of Jesus who was born six months before Jesus was born. His ministry was foretold in the Old Testament by the prophets as one being John, one who would prepare the way of the Lord and let people know the arrival of the Messiah. And in John chapter 1, verse 29, the Bible says these words. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now what I want you to notice first and foremost, I want you to notice this distinct fact. This verse describes someone who is very convinced about the identity of Jesus. Notice how he identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John is convinced that, about that. Then in John chapter 3, verse 30 and verse 31, he says these words, He must become greater and greater, and I must become, John saying this, I must become less and less. He has come from above and is greater than anyone else. We are on the earth and we speak earthly things. But he has come from heaven and is greater than anyone else. Verse 36 of John chapter 3. And anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life. Anyone who doesn't obey the Son will never experience eternal life, but remains under God's angry judgment. Now when you read these verses and you stop and ponder these verses for a moment, John 
understands the role that he plays in proclaiming the fact that Jesus is God's son. That's his role. He understands it. He understands the whole concept of what his role was in the proclamation of who Jesus was, the Son of God. But just like our lives, just like in our own lives, when circumstances and situations begin to change, uncertainty gradually begins to replace certainty. You have to catch that. In our lives, when uncertainty and situations begin to change in our lives, uncertainly, uncertainty gradually begins to replace certainly. Disillusionment sets in. And it begins to cloud our discernment. And that's exactly what happened to John. Crowds followed him as he preached. He pointed out the way of Jesus. But when he spoke, against the king, King Herod, when King Herod took his brother's wife and murdered his own wife, and John spoke out against that, King Herod had John arrested and thrown into prison. His circumstance changed. John's life, as he had known it, transformed to something completely different. His situation is now that he is now in a prison cell. No longer are crowds following him. No longer is he proclaiming the way of the Lord. He is alone in a prison cell. His situation changed. His circumstance changed. And that is not only true in John's life, but it's also true in our lives. When our situation changes, when life throws a curveball our way, it begins to raise questions in our spirit and we begin to have thoughts of doubt. As the days pass, John's influence decreased. His esteem is down. Once he was a free man, now he's confined to a small prison cell. And there's no one there who is interceding on his behalf. And perhaps, perhaps John is in that prison cell and he's reflecting on some Old Testament verses that proclaimed and identified the work of Jesus. And you find these words in Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5 through verse 6. When he comes, when Jesus comes, notice this. When Jesus comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like deer, and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. Springs will gush forth in the wilderness, and streams will water the wasteland. Chapter 42, verse, and verse 7. Look at these words. I, the Lord, have called you to demonstrate my righteousness. This is a description of Jesus. I, the Lord, God the Father, is saying, I've called you to demonstrate my righteousness. I will take you by the hand and and guard you, and I will give you to my people, Israel, as a symbol of my covenant, and you will be a light to guide the nation. Verse 7. You will open the eyes of the blind, you will free the captives from prison, and you will release those who sit in dark 
dungeons. Where was John? He was in a prison. He was in a dark dungeon. And notice, notice, as he's reflecting, remember he was a proclaimer of Jesus? He was leading the way and pronouncing the, the righteousness of Jesus to the people of Israel? Remember that. Now he's sitting in prison, and he's probably reflecting on these words of who Jesus is. This is who I was proclaiming. The one who was coming to heal. The one who was going to open the blind eyes. The one who was going to unplug the deaf ears. And John is now sitting in prison. He is a captive in a dark dungeon. And he's wondering, doesn't the Bible say, doesn't the prophet say that he is going to release those in dark dungeons? Well, I'm in a dungeon. Where is Jesus now? All the things that Jesus was going to do, all the things that were prophesied that Jesus was going to do, when he came around, where is he now? How come Jesus isn't helping me while I'm in a dark dungeon? When is Jesus going to establish his rule as the prophets declare? When is Jesus going to do that? When is his kingdom going to be initiated? Who is going to be my advocate while I am now in prison? And the Bible tells us that John begins to doubt. If Jesus came, as the prophets declared, to set the captives free, what about me? I'm in prison. I'm alone. I need to be set free. If there's anybody who needs to be set free, I'm a candidate to be set free. Where is Jesus? I'm his cousin. He should set me free. We pick up the story of John, who no, no doubt is becoming especially frustrated upon hearing the awesome reports of what Jesus did. We pick up his story in Luke chapter 7, verse 18 and verse 19. Now notice this. The disciples of John the Baptist told John about everything Jesus is doing. John is in prison. John is in prison. So people are coming to him and telling him what Jesus is doing. So John called for two of his disciples and he sent them to the Lord to ask him, are you the Messiah we've been expecting? Or should we keep looking for someone else. You see what's happening here? John is having doubts. Having doubts. Now if you look really closely at these words, it seems to me that John is looking for something in Jesus that Jesus is not willing to. To give. Look at verse 20. John's two disciples found Jesus and said to him, John the Baptist sent us to ask this question. Are you the Messiah we've been expecting? Or should we keep looking for someone else? The disciples of John are asking Jesus a question. You get that. Are you the Messiah? And if you notice really, really closely, Jesus does not answer the question. Look at verse 21. 
At the very time, Jesus cured many people of their diseases, illnesses, and evil spirits, and he restored sight to many who were blind. Did you notice that? Jesus doesn't answer the question. It's as, it's as if, this is, this is what's happening. It's as if Jesus pushes a pause button on the question in verse 21, and he continues, it continues describing the work that Jesus is doing. You see, instead of answering the question through dialogue, they asked him a very distinct question. Are you the Messiah or should we be looking for someone else? Jesus doesn't even, he provides them an object lesson. It's as if Jesus is saying, hold that thought, but look at, look at what I am doing here. And he, start, he turns around and he starts healing people. People who are deaf can now hear. People who are lame can now walk. Those who are demon-possessed are now freed. Those who are blind are now seen. He doesn't answer the question. All he does is he continues doing what he's been prophesied to do. And then verse 22 of Luke chapter 7. Look at these words. Then, after he'd done all of these miraculous works, then he told John's disciples, go back to John and tell him what you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. And tell him, tell him another thing, Jesus is saying. Tell him one more thing. God blesses those who do not turn away because of me. See, Jesus says to his disciples, go back and tell him what you have seen and heard. All the things that were prophesied about Jesus from the prophet Isaiah, Jesus is quoting. You go back and you look back in those verses in Isaiah that we had just talked about. All the things that were prophesied by the prophet Isaiah that Jesus was going to do, Jesus describes he is doing. But there is one phrase, listen, this, this is very close. There is one phrase that Jesus does not include from the description in Isaiah. And that phrase is this. I will release the prisoners who are captive in prison. Those who are in the dark dungeons, I'm not going to release. Isn't that interesting? Why did Jesus say that? Why did he pronounce to John all the things that he was doing, but he does not say one phrase from the prophet Isaiah that he will release the captives from prison? Because Jesus is sending a message to John. And the message is this. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. You can see my deeds prove it. The lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear. But John, but John, I've got news for you. And it's not good news. John, I've got news for you. And the news is this. I'm not going to free you from prison. Jesus avoided that statement. See, John was looking for a physical solution to his issue, his problem, his, his situation. 
But Jesus, listen, Jesus was not going to provide a temporal, physical help. What Jesus was providing was something far greater than that. He was providing something that lasts into eternity. You see, friends, what we have to understand, sometimes God's ways are higher than our ways, and God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. What you may consider you want God to do in your life, God has a higher purpose for that expectation in your life. Sometimes we think we want God to massage and manage and create new situations and find us new pathways to walk through in order to get us where we want to go. And God has something far greater that he wants to accomplish in our lives. I have a grandchild, and I noticed this very interesting fact about my grandchild. And those of you who have grandchildren, perhaps you even have children. You know, small children have this incredible knack to ask a very, very important question just before dinner. They ask the question, can I have a snack? Just before dinner, can I have a cookie? Can I have ice cream? Can I have some chocolate cake? Right before dinner. They have, I don't know where children learn this, but that's what the question is. Just before dinner, children ask that question. And really good parents, parents who are on top of their game, say something like, we're ready to eat soon, and if you would like a snack, here's a carrot, or here's a celery stick. Now if you, and, and usually when they receive that kind of an answer, they don't want that. No, 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 I want chocolate cake. I want a cookie. But good parents, you don't allow your child something that they want because you know it's not going to be good for them at that moment. Jesus is doing something very similar here in the story of Luke chapter 7. What Jesus is doing here is, see, John wants something. He wants an answer to a question. Are you really the Messiah? And Jesus meets him in a way that John doesn't expect. And John is intrigued by how Jesus responds to it. But little does John know that Jesus offers something much better than John could expect. But what does Jesus offer? What does Jesus offer? When you experience maybe doubt, and you're wondering, who is the Messiah? Who is Jesus? What can he do for me? What do you think Jesus offers you? When you have moments and situations in your life and you're questioning and you're wondering why something is happening that you never expected to happen, what do you want from Jesus? And what does Jesus offer? Well, the first thing Jesus offers is transformation over information. Transformation, not information. The question that John asked is a fair question. Because you see, before, he was promoting the Messiah. Now he's in prison and he's wondering, why is Jesus not releasing me? I'm a captive. I'm in a dungeon. Why isn't Jesus releasing me? I've been promoting him. Why am I not being released? 
See, what John wants, he wants an answer, certainly. But more than just having an answer, he wants certainty. He wants to know absolutely, logically, information that he can grab a hold on. He wants to know all the facts. He wants to know the absolute truth. He wants to know beyond a shadow of doubt. Some of us are wired that way as well. We want solution. We want answer. If we have questions, we want to know why certain things are happening. We want certainty in our life. We want to follow a logical pattern and we want everything to be nicely packaged for us in our life because we want certainty in order to progress in our faith. But listen, you know this. I don't have to tell you, but I'm going to tell you this anyway. Listen. Man, people, us, we have a limited capacity. We have limited intelligence. And we cannot wrap our arms around a limitless God. So what Jesus does is that He does not give information. He doesn't answer John's question. What Jesus does is He provides transformation. Look at the miraculous things that are happening. Look at the lives that are being changed for the glory of God. Things are happening. Things are working out. John wants to know information. John wants to know why certain things are happening. What's going to happen next? He wants certainty. Why are things happening like this in my life? Let me logically understand what is transpiring and how can I get out of this prison cell? What do I need to do to process my situations properly? How do I engage so that I can be set free? But what Jesus provides are stories. Stories of transformation that will lead John to the right answer. The second thing that Jesus offers is that Jesus offers faith, not answer. In the way that Jesus answers these disciples, the implied answer certainly creates more uncertainty. And I have to ask myself, why would Jesus do that? Why wouldn't he just respond dramatically and directly to the answer that the disciples are, of John are asking? And the reason why Jesus does what he does is because Jesus knows that doubt, when we have doubt, in our faith, when we have doubt, it leads to deeper faith. We need to understand that. John wanted the answers, and all he got was, look at the miracles. Look what's happening. I'm doing what, was, what, what is being prophesied. And what Jesus is asking John to do is to have a deeper level of faith. Look at James chapter 1, verse 2 and verse 3. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. 
It's not about receiving an answer to every question that you may have. Instead, it's about continuing. Continuing to have faith when there is no easy answer. I have heard this so often. I have heard this so often. Followers of Jesus, wonderful Christian people, when they they imply that somehow people can't be Christian when they have doubts. There's nothing further than than that from the truth. I I like what Lee Strobel says. Lee Strobel was an atheist. He's an award-winning journalist, and he was an atheist who went on a whole quest to disprove God, and in the process, he discovered faith in Jesus Christ. Look what he says. Don't you think God would rather have you be honest with him about your doubts than have you profess a phony faith? He knows what is going on inside of you anyway. It's absurd to think that we can mask our doubts for Him. Your faith, listen, your faith and my faith become stronger when you know what you believe and why you believe. My son attends a church in downtown San Francisco. And each Sunday in his church, they recite the Apostles' Creed at the conclusion of every service. So one time I was there, and, I, and he was describing how meaningful this was to us. And I said to him, I said, Son, why is this moment so meaningful in your life to recite the Apostles' Creed every single Sunday? And this is what he said to me. He said, each week when I recite the Apostles' Creed, Each week when I do that, it reaffirms my faith. At that moment, I verbally profess what I believe in my Christian faith, and on a weekly basis, I profess the very foundational foundational, um, levels or elements of my faith. That happens every week. And that's the foundation, friends, that we build on. That's the foundation. When doubts come into your heart and into your mind, At that moment, you rely upon the foundational truths of the gospel message. You rely upon that. And sometimes in our journey, you are going to have doubts, and I'm going to have doubts. Listen, a faith that has never been tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. Last week, one of our members here in our church showed me a video on, on their smartphone, iPhone, whatever phone they had. And they they showed me behind their house is a beautiful green space with a walking path and there's a creek that runs beside the path. And as they're walking along the path in this forested, beautiful forested area, as they're walking along, these deer appear right next to them. It was amazing. It was an amazing picture. But I was looking at the forest, this, this green space, the trees that had grown there over the years and years that had not been cut down. And I looked at that forest, and I thought to myself, you know, all those trees in that green space area, they didn't pop up overnight. Those trees grew in that area for a very long time. And those trees grew strong and became stronger and grew taller over decades and decades of weathering the weather. Wind, 
cold, blustery wind. Storm, snowstorm, extreme heat, severe elements, rain and wind and storm and snow and ice. And those trees continued and remained and in the midst of that adversity continued to grow. It caused them to be strong so that when the winds come now, they don't blow over because it's taken them years and years of growing through the element. When you and I experience doubt due to some trial or some change of it, a circumstance in our life, when you and I experience some adversity, maybe you're presently experiencing some adversity, maybe it's employment issues, or maybe it's been the loss of a spouse, or maybe you've witnessed the moral failure of a spiritual leader, maybe you've experienced tension in, in severing family relationship. I don't know what kind of adversities you may have faced in life, but the ever-present foundational faith that you stand on, you must rely upon that because it won't erode from your life. You have to believe, you have to believe, you have to believe that when doubt captivates your mind and when, when doubt begins to express itself in your heart, that doubt should promote you and should motivate you to fall in a journey of searching for the truth. You should be compelled to search for the truth. John chapter 20, verse 31, the Bible says these words. But these are written so that, that's the Bible. These words in the scriptures are written so that you may continue to do what? To believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So faith comes from hearing. And that is hearing the good news about Christ. Here's the third thing that Jesus offers. Salvation, not trite saying. Now let me explain what I mean by this. Many times, as people, we want quick answers, quick solutions to some very difficult questions. We want the Barnes Note version to help us answer issues of spiritual life. I remember, I remember in high school, I don't know if you still do this in high school, but we had to take an English course on Shakespearean literature. I don't understand Shakespeare at all. And I would sit in class in high school and all of these words, I didn't understand the concept, I didn't understand what he was talking about, I didn't understand anything about Shakespearean literature. But then I found something very interesting at the bookstore. They had Barnes Notes. So whatever I had to study in Shakespearean literature, I would go to the bookstore and pull out The Merchant of Venice, Romeo and Juliet, all these Shakespearean literature things, and I would read that 
And it was in plain English, and I understood that someone had deciphered what Shakespeare was writing about, and I could understand and highlight, understand all the cultural issues, all the family issues that were being dealt with, all the deceit, all the shame, all the crime, everything. It was right there, and I understood it. See, I needed to understand Shakespeare quickly. I needed the answers quickly. And that's many times how we approach life. We want we want things to just be packaged just right. And when people experience doubt and they're experiencing a crisis of faith, what they don't need at that moment is a quick answer or a quick solution, a trite saying. We want that, don't we? We want a quick, short, pat answer, and life is going to be back to normal again. Can I tell you something, friends? Life is much more complicated than quick, trite answers. My wife, Gabby, and I have a, a dear friend of ours who eight years ago, at the age of 52, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. This lady, this lady was brilliant. She was smart. She was a dynamic leader. She was an executive in a nonprofit agency. She had worked at a prominent university. She was a gem of a person. Today, she's a shell of herself. Can't feed herself. In a convalescent home. When she got sick, her husband forced her. We've gone to visit her. We've spent time with her. Sometimes she recognizes us. Sometimes she doesn't recognize us. And many times we've walked out of her room and my wife and I look at each other and we think to ourselves, we talk to ourselves and we say, what happened? How did this transpire? We don't get it. And friends, there, as much as it hurts our heart and our spirits to see a friend disappear in front of our eyes gradually and slowly, there are no answers. We have no answers. We have no explanation. We can't even comprehend why this has happened to her. Why God would somehow allow her life to be cut short like that. And I can tell you honestly, there, there have been seasons of doubt. There have been days and weeks and months. Life is not perfect. And there will be periods of time in your life and in my life, there will be periods of times when we walk through a deep, deep valley and there will be times in our life that will be so hard we can hardly bear it. But it's in those moments we can't give up. We need to hold on. We can't lose our faith. We need to hold on to our faith in Jesus. Look what 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 says. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they will produce for us a glory that 
vastly outweighs them and will last forever. Listen, because of what we experience in life, I can tell you, I can tell you, even if you are the strongest believer in this church, even if you're the strongest believer in the city, I can tell you this, believers do will be dogged by doubts. You will have questions that you can't answer. And sometimes you will feel guilty and sometimes you will feel like you will be completely ostracized by other people and you, you can't even mention your doubts to other people. And perhaps you even feel that God has abandoned you completely. Sometimes you feel those kinds of things. Those agonizing doubts. Somebody was going to come along and give you some kind of trite answer and you kind of look at them and say, you have no clue what you're talking about. Because I'm going through a deep, deep valley. And your quick, pat answers are not helping Listen, there are two types of doubters, and I'm going to wrap up with this. There are dishonest doubters and there are honest doubters. Dishonest doubters are people who don't want to believe. One description I heard about these dishonest doubters is like an atheist can't find God for the same reason a criminal can't find a police officer. The atheists, atheists and agnostics, they're not searching for God. A person who says, I don't believe, and, and never investigates the claims of Christianity, is, has, has put self-imposed doubts into their life. That's a dishonest doubt. Because they're not really seeking and searching for the truth. That's a dishonest doubt. But there is such a thing as an honest doubt. And honest doubt are people who ask questions because they are seeking the truth. That's honest doubt. Stephen Brown said, if you've never had a question about your faith, you probably don't have much faith. I love the admonishment given to us in the book of Jude, Jude chapter 1, verse 27. And you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. That's a description of doubt. We, listen, I'm going to wrap up. Just hang with me, because this is really important. Listen, you and I, we can't be afraid of doubt. And at the same time, we can't shame people who may be experiencing doubt. Our responsibility as Christians, our responsibility as a church, our responsibility as members of Warden Full Gospel Assembly, our responsibilities as followers of Jesus is to show graciousness and love and compassion and support and encouragement and friendship to those in the family of Christ who may be experiencing doubt because of situations and circumstances that they are going deep through and they're wondering does God really hear the plea of my heart and we need to be people who come alongside not ostracizing them 
but loving, putting our arms of love around them. Hey, listen, I want people in my life, I want people in our church to surround me when I When I'm asking a question, where is God? Where is God in my situation? I don't need somebody to hammer me over the head with a spiritual hammer and give me a scriptural verse. I just need someone who loves me. I just need someone who comes alongside of me and hugs me. When I'm asking the question, why is this happening to me? Why am I struggling in my faith? I don't need someone to ostracize me and push me away. I just need someone to love me and listen to me. That's all what I need. Jesus, Jesus doesn't always change our circumstances. He left John in prison. And Jesus doesn't always, Jesus doesn't always give answers that we're looking for. But what Jesus can do is he can change our perspective. So when I'm disorientated and when I am confused and I have doubt creeping into my existence, I want to come out of that time stronger in my faith. I want to emerge as a person who's been through the test, but whose faith is still there. And in order for me to do that, I need you and you need me to come alongside and we together, in the midst of our doubting times, we can share and cry together and hug together and love together and pray together. And together, in the midst of our doubtful experiences, our faith remains intact. I love this promise. I love this promise that God gives to us in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13. You need to write this down. You need to memorize this. If you look for me wholeheartedly, the Lord says, you will find me. So instead of quitting, in moments of crisis, in experiences that are unpleasant, when you go through the heartaches that life sometimes brings to us, doubt begins to creep in. What Jesus is trying to teach us here is, in those moments, in those moments, Don't give up. Don't shrink away. Don't shrivel up and hide. What you need to do is seek the Lord more fervently. Seek the Lord. And when you do, when you call upon the name of the Lord, and when you wholeheartedly embrace Him, Here's the promise. God will show up. God will show up. 
Now, he may not release you out of prison, but he'll show up. He may not change the circumstances, but he will show up. Your situation may become more chaotic, but God will be in the middle of that. Because you're seeking after him. You're not shrinking away. You're not hiding. You're not running away. But you're seeking after God. And when you do, and when you're dogged by faith, by, when you're dogged by doubt, listen, let your faith remain strong and wholeheartedly call on the name of the Lord. And he will show up on your behalf. I want to close today by reciting the Apostles' Creed. It's going to show up on the screen, whether you're at home or you're in here in the sanctuary. The Apostle Creed will show up, and we're just going to say it together, all right? And then we'll enter into communion. Can you put it on the screen, please? The Apostle's Creed. Here we go. Say it with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born to the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen.